This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Black Adam, what have your powers ever given to you? Nothing but heartache. I was a slave until I died. Then I was reborn a god. My son sacrificed his life to save me. Now, I kneel before no one. In this world, they're heroes. I feel the pain of my city wherever I go. And they're villains. Heroes don't kill people. My vision has shown me the future. You have two choices. You can be the destroyer of this world. Or you can be its savior. That's up to you. Directed by John A. Collette Sarah, Warner Brothers' Black Adam is opening in theaters and its cinematographer, Lawrence Shear, is our guest in today's episode of Behind the Screen. Larry is a longtime collaborator with Todd Phillips, with credits including The Hangover Trilogy and Joker, for which he earned a Cinematography Oscar nomination. His credits also include Godzilla, King of Monsters, and Garden State. Next, he'll be reteaming with Phillips on the sequel to Joker. In this episode, Sheer details the filming of Black Adam and looks forward to Joker 2. I'm Carolyn Giardino. Welcome to The Hollywood Reporter's Behind the Screen. Larry, welcome back to Behind the Screen. Really glad you were able to join us. I'm very happy to be here. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Congratulations on Black Adam. I uh, had the opportunity to see it in the Dolby screening room. It looked fantastic. Why don't we start with how did you um, get involved in the project? First, I'm glad you saw it in the Dolby screening room. Dolby is definitely a good way to watch this movie or IMAX. I say that because I spent like three weeks QCing all these prints, and I really now understand the difference between Dolby and IMAX and a normal screen. 
you'll be fine on a normal screen too, but it's if you can do it on IMAX or Dolby, it's really worth it. Um, my involvement with Black Adam really started with John McCollette Sarah, the director. I was approached to shoot some reshoots for Jungle Cruise, which Jama directed with Dwayne Johnson and the whole team at Seven Bucks. I just really liked Jama a lot. And so I knew even then he was preparing to do Black Adam because at some point we actually looked at stages at Trillith in Atlanta. And so when it came time to like finishing Jungle Cruise and I had already finished you know, Joker and we were sort of working on stuff like that, he approached me and I said, yeah, I really enjoyed working with him on Black Adam. And I thought, although I'm not the biggest comic book fan, and I feel like even saying that I'll get dragged by whoever on the internet because they're like, why are you doing a comic book movie? You're not even a comic book fan. I'm not the biggest comic book movie fan, although I really actually admire and respect the fact of that genre is not as easy as it seems by any stretch of the imagination. And I was really up for the challenge of taking on sort of a little bit more of a traditional comic book movie and the fact that, you know, it involves people who fly and all the rest of it and all the challenges that come with that. So the combination of JAMA, this challenge, Dwayne, and just, you know, the idea of, uh, of, of, you know, throwing myself back into something in the DC universe was really fun to me. Now, this is obviously a very different look and feel to Joker. When you and Jama started talking about the project, what was the creative intent or the look that the two of you discussed? I mean, I think, yes, it's definitely different. Joker, in a lot of ways, is like obviously doesn't exist really in the comic book genre at all, because in large part, it's a character study of a man who, who sort of goes, you know, down a different path. And, and so it never felt in any way being part of this, of this sort of lexicon and the canon of, of the DC universe outside of its peripheral sort of tangential relationships. Because this was a little bit more in the, in the square of comic books and because it's also introducing five new characters that have never been on screen before, we really talked a lot about just how could we add a real sense of energy to every scene, keep this thing moving at a real clip. Because I think what we realize is, you know, a lot of these movies can be two forty-five, almost three-hour sort of opuses. But I think Jama recognized early on that this movie works when it's really moving and motoring. And because you're introducing so many people, you know, you couldn't really, if you spent too much time on every one, we found it to be a little bit laborious. And so this was like, well, every scene, how can we inject a certain amount of energy? And how can we basically keep, you know, basically Black Adam is a reluctant hero. He's not a hero at all. And he says that in the movie many times. And so he's not really there for any purpose except he was woken up. He's trying to figure out why he's there. And He's trying to, you know, exact a little bit of revenge. The JSA are trying to stop him. And so it's a very clean and simple storyline. And, and so in our regard, and everything we talked about was like, how can each scene have its own energy? Um, you know, I think, interestingly enough, although you won't see it that much, you know, I like this idea of how do you make a genre film still have a visual, you know, sense and a, and a point of view from a visual standpoint? Um, 
And so in early days, you know, we had some discussions about like, you know, Mad Max Fury Road, which is effectively a genre film that obviously, you know, was at its at its core was a propelling forward action movie that that um, tried to have a distinctive look for sure. I mean, one of the stylistic things we tried to do in the movie, and it's it's interesting because even though I'm not like a guy die hard, watch every comic book movie, you're certainly aware of the comic book styles of certain Marvel movies, of Zack Snyder's movies, of Nolan's films, of, you know, everyone who's sort of come before in, in the lexicon of like this comic book genre that's become such a big per- part of like the theater experience. We, you know, in- initially I really was interested in the Bolt, which is this high, high speed camera system that allows the camera to move incredibly fast from point A to point B. And so you can program these moves that can move quicker than any crane can do, than any camera operator can move. It can literally move, you know, 20 feet in a half a second or something like that, or two a second, you know. And so in order to sort of capture those moments, it allows you then to shoot at an incredibly high speed. In our case, it would be a thousand frames per second. And then you can move between those points by ramping it and creating these really dynamic moves. And we're not alone. We, we no, by no means, you know, thought like we invented this thing. It's been seen in Zack Snyder's movies and, and other films like that. But we did start to say like, we early on, there's a sequence in which he's breaking out of this underwater prison, which is all raining and, and it's sort of high tech. And it's an underground place in which they sort of imprison people when they, they don't want them to get out. And so we did an early test in which we used the bolt and thousand frames per second. And that sequence, which we tested and we knew was going to be in the rain and, and, and had a lot of complexities to it. I think once we tested that sequence and went, okay, 100%, we're going to build this set in such a way that we can build up the light to shoot at 1,000 frames per second. We can do these camera moves. We can have the bolt in all these places. Started becoming a little bit of the language of the film. And, and of course, when you're dealing with superheroes moving at such high speed, at some point, it's like you need to slow the action down to understand how they move in relationship to the rest of the world, which is normal. And so I think once we discovered that early on and we knew we were gonna do this sequence near the end of the movie in this in this bolt and thousand frame per second phantom stuff, we then said, okay, this is gonna be part of the language of the whole movie and really started putting it into the movie. So we shot, we shot a lot of thousand frames per second stuff on this movie and uh, and that was really fun because I'd certainly shot some phantom work, but never to the extent that we did in this movie. So that was that was something we, you know, we certainly tried to to become part of the language of the film. You shot in Atlanta and Los Angeles, correct? Very little in Los Angeles, just a little bit of some volume work in Los Angeles. It was ninety nine percent Atlanta, which even that in its own way, it's like it's movie magic. Like, of course. I would have loved to have gone to Morocco or Dubai or somewhere in the Middle East. I would have loved to have, you know, explored Iceland for, for, you know, whatever other little bits or done aerials into these places. But even that, looking back on the experience of Black Adam is in its own way something that I, you know, as a kid watching movies and seeing them as all a piece of like, you know, magic and, 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 you know, sort of tricking the audience into thinking you're somewhere you're not. The fact that it was all shot effectively inside and some backlot work 
in Atlanta is something I'm actually proud of because it does feel like you travel uh, to a whole brand new world. And I think the world building that Tom Meyer did, the production designer, and Jama and the rest of the team, I thought was quite good. And and when I watch it, I'm able to at least have a little bit of a sense of like, yeah, you know what? I, I If somebody told me this was all in Atlanta, I probably wouldn't believe them. So... <laughs> I don't know if I'm trying to tap, pat myself on the back, but I'm like, hey, you know what? It's pretty good because when you set out to make a movie like that, even with the experiences that I have, it's always a little bit daunting because I come from a relationship with movies that generally starts with real world situations and with real world things and real world sets. And even my experience with Godzilla, King of Monsters, and some of the blue screen and some of the sort of world building that that movie had. Um, it's still always, I think, a little bit daunting to sort of step into that world and go, right, um, part of this is is here, but a lot of this isn't, and it's going to be added later. Obviously, there was a lot of visual effects in it, and you mentioned that you used a volume as well. What were some of the things that challenged you from, um, you know, that aspect of the project working, you know, with the visual effects team? Yeah, I think it's a large part of prep. And the benefit we had, I think, is that we, you know, in spite of all the COVID that shut everything down, we were sort of in the beginnings of prep during that time. And the beauty of a movie like this, which involves a lot of previs, involves a lot of discussions and world building that happens far ahead of when you actually step on with camera, we were able to do a lot of those things remotely with teams over Zoom and so we could have those discussions as to, one, not only just building out the previs together, and I had the benefit of being on early enough that I could build it with Jama and Tom and Bill, the VFX supervisor. Um, but we could have those kind of discussions as to, like, changing things in advance and, and those kind of things. You know, when we first started the movie, I think we lived in a world in which we thought maybe 60 or 70 percent was going to be on a volume. And we were actually going to do a lot more motion capture, similar to Lion King and, and movies that are sort of avatar combination of bringing cameras and, and cranes and dollies and actually pre-shooting the movies, not just on previs, but with cameras that were then capturing, you know, some of the scenes. And then later we would execute them more, more fully somewhere around the COVID time and trying to get access to a volume and the sort of the lack of asset, we actually started building more and more sets. So the movie probably went from 60 or 70% volume work to maybe in earnest, maybe 10 or 15% maximum. But I was still really excited about doing the volume work because I believe in it as a really interesting and an important part of like our now our film language and what we can do in that. And it really does make a difference, particularly in the times we used it, which were the Hawk Cruiser, which is this big futuristic spaceship of sorts that, that the JSA travel around in. We had its main cabin, which didn't really have exposed windows, and that was all done sort of 360 available you know, light that was integrated into the set in a really beautiful way that made our ability to shoot anywhere and everywhere at, at all times really, really great. But the front of the cruiser was like a little cockpit that had windows everywhere. And so having the ability to do that in a volume that was surrounded by, you know, obviously all LED walls, not just made, it made it so much more real for the people inside. It made everyone know exactly where they were, where the spaceship was in space, what was happening with the lighting and the, and the 
whether it was day, night, all the rest of it. But later when we had to do some little surgical reshoots, uh, as all movies like this do, and we couldn't have the volume, that's when I really was able to see, wow, what a difference it makes in terms of just traditional blue screen and green screen technology and having the volume, which not just has all the reflections that people talk about, but really that ubiquitous lighting that finds its way in a, you know, into the actors' faces in a way that, um, that yeah, it, was, it really made a difference. And it made us shoot those cockpit scenes much more effectively and faster and all the rest of it. So, you know, it would have been great, honestly, to shoot a little bit more on volume. And I think um, that would have been really exciting, even though a lot of our, our volume work wasn't necessarily even final pixel, meaning we didn't end up with the shots that we shot in camera. We often replaced them with more finalized versions of those backgrounds. But just even having the, the sort of core photography or the beginnings of the photography there outside the windows made a big difference. So this was this is a tool that you would like to use again. You like I having would. in your toolbox then. Yeah, for sure. For <laughs> sure. And 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 you know, it was also one of those things of even taking the movie on that I was excited about jumping into new technologies like that. I thought. One, I saw I saw what they did with Mandalorian, and I've, t- I've talked with Greg Fraser about even the work that you know the ways in which he used it. I had done some of some volume work even on Joker and the subway scene, so the idea of jumping in more you know fully and, and with more opportunities to use it was yeah definitely a big part of why I wanted to do the film. What camera and lens choices did you make, and why? Well, it's interesting because early on we had a decent amount of volume work that we thought we would be using. I started Aerie 65 with spherical lenses, very similar to what I used on Joker and even on Godzilla, even though Godzilla was anamorphic. And I test them in a volume here in Culver City in Los Angeles where I am. And I remember talking a bit to Greg Fraser and some other people about how they felt like sometimes the volume cannot exactly fit and work and you sort of go, oh, this doesn't feel right. And that if you shoot anamorphic, sometimes it made it blend a little bit. So I think partly in those early stages of looking at it, I said, well, maybe I should consider anamorphic. I hadn't really thought of shooting the movie anamorphic. So then I tested a couple full frame anamorphics. I really like large format and the idea of now even exploiting the bigger sensor with anamorphic. So I started looking at some options for full frame anamorphic lenses and I found these Technovision lenses, which are not a two to one squeeze, but they're actually a one, four, five to one squeeze. And uh, the minute I sort of started playing with them, it was very quick. It just was like, this kind of feels like the movie. The lenses have a lot of character. There's a lot of fall off on the edges. They're imperfect in a way that I thought would also potentially help blend the VFX because it was a very VFX heavy movie. And so to take the edge off of everything being so perfect. And I really kind of liked the lenses and, you know, we modified them to make them closer focus and to allow us to sort of, you know, not have to change lenses as we got closer or use diopters, which sometimes you have to do with anamorphics because the, clo- the focus doesn't go close enough. And, and in the end, we probably shot the whole movie on five lenses. You know, there was like a 40, a 50, a 75. And, uh, and every once in a while we go longer than that, but those three lenses, plus this short zoom, which was like a 40 to 70 millimeter zoom that kind of was the 
85, 90% of the whole movie. Would you talk about the, um, the visual style that you gave to the flashback scenes? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, we were always sort of on the fence of like, is it just totally black and white? Is it, it, we knew it wanted to be high contrast. We knew it wanted to be very desaturated, if not fully black and white, not just to differentiate it from the rest of the movie, but, you know, in a traditional, cause it was going back 5,000 years. Um, and knowing that it was going to open the movie and when we intercut it to make the divergence of, of color and contrast look, look there. And so I initially even tested shooting monochrome and I went and took like a, you know, a red monochrome camera and shot because we were shooting, even though it's in Atlanta, there are these mines in Atlanta. It's a sand mine and it's about two hours south, I think towards Alabama in Georgia. And, um, and yeah, it looks kind of otherworldly and, and it's supposed to look again, like 5,000 year old conduct, you know, BC conduct. And, and I think the black and white, you know, taking all the color out at least made it feel like, you know, less real than what it was, which is basically just like a sand pit in, in Georgia. Um, and so that was, and so even down to the end when we were sort of figuring out, like we, I think we sort of centered on mostly black and white with just a little bit of color for the Eternium, which is this, this stone that they find that has a lot of power and wealth towards, you know, its powers, but also it's like, it, it generates everything for this community. Um, so yeah, I think we, you know, there's an, I'm going to screw up the name without looking it up. That's why I'm like, oh, should I name the name? Cause I'll forget the name. Uh, I, mean, I think it's Salgano, which is like this old uh, black and white photographer who took these incredible pictures of, of basically, you know, workers in South America, like working these mines along ladders and super high contrast and, and really striking imagery of, of effectively, you know, whatever it is, these miners who are, you know, for all intents and purposes, like the movie, they're like slaves, slave labor. And so they become almost just like specks of ants existing along huge things. And a lot of that, of course, for our world was um, some set extensions and stuff, but those were some of the references we talked about was that photographer, which whoever listens to this will correct me that I screwed up the name of the, of this photographer. Okay. Round two, name something that's not boring. A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So it was in the news recently that the project was originally rated R and then dialed back. What did you shoot that gave it the original R rating and that you that we won't be seeing in this movie. Well, it's interesting. I didn't know that. Now, maybe I'm saying I, from my experience on the movie, it was always PG-13. Yeah, I, it, it, and, and partly, I, it's interesting you say that because, you know, there's a, there's a core sort of um, character that's the center of the movie, which is like a 13-year-old boy um, and has some parallels to like, you know, the rest of the story, the sort of parallel people living in the present that have, you know, parallels back to 5,000 years old, you know, before, but 
from my experience, you know, at least from my days working on the movie, I always felt like it was PG-13 and never was so hardcore. I mean, there were things we had to take out. It's, it's a very violent movie, unlike a lot of traditional superheroes. Black. What, what did you have to take out? I think like a little, like a couple frames of him ripping off some guy's arm and tossing it on the ground and like, and I think some of these happened even very last minute. I remember seeing like a cut and I went, oh, wait. And I'm like, yeah, we lost a couple of frames. I'm like, oh, I see. They probably were like, that's too much. Um, and those kind of things that I think I had to just peel it back a little bit so it could stay in its PG-13 rating. Um, but I think at its core, it wasn't like a hard R movie. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't in that vein of, you know, Joker or something like that or Deadpool, I guess, is R because of all the sort of language and some other things like that. But, um, but yeah, my experience, interesting, was that it was always PG-13. You mentioned that you were introducing new characters, including, obviously, Black Adam himself. What was your favorite, from a character standpoint, what was your favorite scene to shoot and why? Well, it's funny. It's a scene that actually might have been cut. I'm like, why would <laughs> Which is like, has no, this is like, again, this is where I'll get bombed out for, for talking about it. But interestingly enough, because, and I get it, I'm a filmmaker, I directed a movie. It's like, I understand more every time I make a movie, more and more about the complexities of what goes on into making a final cut of a movie. So I never sort of like, it's a complex, it's a complex sort of, you know, um, situation no matter what. But there was, interestingly enough, there was a scene early in the movie in which the JSA all sit around a table and kind of get a little bit of their marching orders from Hawkman. So it was a scene effectively between Hawkman. I'm um, no, I, I, should I even be talking about this? This sounds like something I don't know. Sure. <laughs> it's like Hawkman and, and, uh, and, and obviously everybody, Dr. Fate, Adam Smasher, and uh, Cyclone. And it was the four of them. And it actually, the scene had a lot of personality. And it was a fun scene because in a way in which the movie is like always going full force, 100 miles per hour forward, this was like a preamble to that. And probably in some ways, this is why it got cut, was to just keep propelling the movie forward. And some of it was a little bit redundant because there's other ways to get that exposition out of who the people are. But it was a little bit of just a scene to one serve exposition, but also give a little sense of personality from both Smasher and it had some humor between Smasher and, and establishing some of the relationship between Smasher and Cyclone. And they're both kind of young and, you know, Smasher's a bit dumb and kind of funny in that way. And Cyclone's a bit aloof, but, but also has like a really specific personality and, and fate is kind of like the, you know, dad slash grandfather of the group, basically, you know, Sage and all this. And Hawkman's just like, the dad trying to control all the people in his family, you know? And so there was, it was actually quite a funny little scene and had a lot of personality. And, and it was one of those scenes in which, yeah, it was a bit of page count, but, but it, it really gave you a feeling for the personalities of each one of the, of the JSA. Um, and yeah, I think it's like, like a lot of things, it's maybe in an interest of time. It's in, you know, varying reasons why, but, you know, every time we were also in the Hawk cruiser, Anytime we were in the Hawk Cruiser, it was basically an opportunity for all of the JSA to be together. And so there were scenes, like there's a scene somewhere in the middle of the movie where 
it's all the JSA. So you've got all four of those characters. You've got Sarah Shahi, who, who's uh, who who's there um, also, and you also have Black Adam. So you also have Dwayne, and so those six people. We would have these scenes in which they were sort of like you know peppering questions and answers, and it was like your sort of normal like you know science fiction comic book movie exposition stuff. But those scenes always had really good energy and they were really well written in terms of just the banter between four people. And it's like Black Adams obviously standing off in the corner talking about sarcasm and Dr. Fate's always got a lot of personality. So anytime we were in, there were three or four scenes like that in the Hawk Cruiser that were always really fun. Um, and because we had basically the core of the entire movie always together uh, in one place and not necessarily fighting or flying so it was like oh it's like a real scene <laughs> which sometimes in these kind of movies you're like waiting for like you know a real scene with just like for particularly for me because like i said you know the the place in which i come from as my background as a filmmaker how was this cast to work with amazing the cast was you know besides the cast and i had a world-class crew and atlanta was really fun and the cast is really, really fun. Dwayne's excellent. And Dwayne, I had some experience with um, on Jungle Cruise. So I already knew who Dwayne was as a person on set. Incredibly hardworking, really focused, um, also very fun. But, you know, I had never really known these actors. Obviously, I had known Pierce Brosnan as Bond, but all the other types of movies that he's done. I knew a little bit of Aldous's work. Um, from some TV shows, and I had seen him in One Night in Miami. Um, and Quintessa and Noah, who plays Cyclone in Adam Smasher, I knew a little bit, and I'd seen some of their work in, in various things, but didn't know them really well. And they all, including, again, these uh, the other characters, you know, from the villain to Moe to, to, you know, everybody else in the cast, and, you know, they're really, really all amazing attitudes, all really good actors, all really committed, um, a big, big fan. And, you know, Pierce Brosnan for like a guy like me, who's like 52, it's like a little bit of like life goals of like what you could be at 69. And like, I have to do a lot from now for the next 17 years, but I'm like, you watch him and you're like, very Zen, incredibly, obviously like fit and good looking. I mean, I can't change those things, but he like, He's like one of those people you're like, okay, that's a good, that's a good reference point for me to sort of aspire to for, for the next 17 years. Any anecdotes from the set working with him? I don't know. He, it's interesting. My anecdotes aren't even about set. There's a weird little community in, in Atlanta, right? It was like built by this couple like 30 years ago and it's called Serenby. And Serenby is like, I don't know. I guess it's a planned community of sorts that was built under the guise of like probably who knows some sort of socialist communist ideals mixed with like every piece of vegetation in there is like edible. And the entire community of like 200 homes only will ever represent like 90, like three or 4% of the total land. So it's this really weird little spot in Southern South of Georgia, South of Atlanta and I became obsessed with it. I would go there like every other weekend because it had cool little like farm to table restaurants and like these little like, you know, Tony houses and stuff. And then I found out Pierce, basically that's where he stayed the entire shoot. And he had like a little house and he would paint. 
And I was like, even more reason. It was like we were, I was like, this is exactly why I love Pierce. But then I learned like everyone, like four or five other people started going there. But then you, what you start to go there is it's a little bit Stepford in that like you suddenly start to feel like the community isn't exactly real. And so there's like a creepiness, but I still love it. And I, I so when I think of Pierce, I think of him painting in his little house in Serenby. And, uh, and getting weird stares from the community. For listeners who have not been paying close attention to this, you might want to skip the next minute or two. But I have to ask, it's already been uh, on social media that there's the cameo with um, Superman's return at the end. Uh, tell us about shooting that scene. Well, it's interesting enough. I think that scene, and I think to, in part, Dwayne has sort of helped I'll make that it's not like it's leaked but I think Dwayne is like he's okay with it being leaked is I think that was in the works for a long long time you know and interestingly enough it was the last thing we shot on this like little set of reshoots that we did not even reshoots it was really additional photography because sometimes in movies like this and I learned this even on some Marvel movies that friends of mine have worked for worked on and, and even Jungle Cruise in part is is you're always leaving something for some additional photography. You kind of shoot most of the movie, but you're always planning on some level of additional photography after the movie's been cut the first time. It was the last day. And it was basically, John was said, hey, listen, there's an idea. We don't know if we can do it yet because it's still being negotiated and we don't know if we can do it. But effectively, let's just quickly take this throne room set that we, we were working in and he effectively described what it is. It's like, we're going to just, can you create like basically something for Dwayne to walk into as far as the light? And it's like a moonlit scene and we're going to shoot it in like 10 minutes. And so we just put it all together. And then with the idea that we're going to shoot the front half of it. And if they can figure out if they can get it done, like if Dwayne and all his negotiations to get this done, then the back end, we will shoot at a future date. And that's what we did, which was we knew basically in essence what the scene was going to be, but we had to shoot them separately because the second half of it was like hopeful. It was like, if we can get, you know, Henry to be in it, then we'll figure that out on a future date. And we did. And then we had another day in which we could go in and, and pick up his, his side of it. So what was it like the day that Henry came on set? Well, I was actually doing it remotely because uh, I was out of town and they were in London, which is where Henry was. So it was oh, like kind was of, we, yeah, we actually did a lot of it remotely. It was still kind of really exciting. I remember even watching it on, well, because at one point we tested a version of it because we went, well, we could shoot something without him to understand if it works or not, Right. The truth is, as a filmmaker, you got to figure out if something feels right, right? And so we actually shot basically somebody in just, and we we never showed the head. We just had them walk out of a shadow and then just had them walk into their chest. And the chest was the logo, the Superman logo. And while we shot it, um, we just put on, like, just Googled, you know, John Williams Superman theme and played it. And watching an actor just come out of a full silhouette into that was actually goosebumps. And so I went, wow, I mean, this is 100% going to work. Now they just have to figure out if they can get the guy with the head to be in there. Otherwise, you know, who knows? And maybe they just use the, the chest coming into the shot. 
And, uh, and I actually went to a test screening. And again, this is before the leaks and all that, uh, in which they just did the version with just the head, you know, without, without his head. And it played gangbusters. And then it was like, all right, now we have to get, we got to get Henry because it's like, it's great. And it was, it is kind of thrilling. So even both versions, shooting it with just the guy, a headless guy, and shooting the real guy on Zoom was still very actually exciting. I mean, it's cool. He's, he's, you realize there's certain people that are so iconic as the characters that they've played, and he's really one of them, that when you actually see him come out of the shadows and you see his face, it's like, wow, that's cool. So what's next on your plate? All right, so I'm prepping Joker, a new Joker, Folia Du, um, which I think, I think most people sort of know we're doing another Joker. And so, yeah, we start shooting in about five weeks, six weeks. So we're getting close. And uh, yeah, the final steps of prep, very excited. Um, it's always, you know, it's always, one, exciting to get back into this movie with Todd and Marquine, but also uh, we've got Gaga, which is going to be a, a whole new thing, which is going to be amazing. And uh, prep is, for me, always fraught with nerves and anxiety because it's like you're making the whole movie every day. Um, and so uh, I'm excited to get shooting so that the nerves can turn into action. But uh, yeah, and it's always it's always a little bit nerve wracking to jump into into a sequel because you have your own expectations, but you also have now expectations that people have with their relationship of a, of a previous movie. So which was but hugely we're, we're, successful. We're up for it. Yeah, exactly. How do you feel about working with uh, Lady Gaga? I'm so excited. First of all, I was a huge Star is Born fan, also a Gucci fan. I'm a real believer not only in her as an artist and, of course, the, 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 her artistry as a musician and a singer, but I really believe in her as an actor. And I just think she's going to be a really cool fit for this movie and will create a similar kind of magic that Joaquin brought by himself. I think the combination of the two will will be exactly what we hope, which is exciting and, and, and we'll, we'll find, you know, magic every day on set, but hopefully also we'll have a little bit of madness in there. So we like when there's a bit of chaos. And so we hope that uh, she'll, she'll bring just the same kind of necessary chaos that, that Joaquin brought to the first one. Well, I know you and, um, and Todd like in filmmaking to jazz. Exactly. Yeah, so you prep like crazy, and then you go like, okay, but we get all the players together, and now let's just start playing and seeing how it changes once, you know, the cameras are rolling, and, and we've now, you know, put the club together, and we have the musicians, and now let's start playing. So, yeah, it's exactly that. And we're hoping for, for a good bit of improv and a good bit of, like, discovery, as, as we definitely like. Which is always scary because you're going, well, you then are hoping for like a really good, like, you know, it's like sometimes jazz can be dreadful. <laughs> you don't want that. <laughs> Where people are just playing randomly for too long. Yeah. So it's like we want to create the, the kind of jazz that feels thrilling. Yeah. Where are you shooting? Well, you know, it's a decent amount on stage. So we're going to shoot in Los Angeles, which is exciting for us. So we can all be home. 
And then we have some some shooting back in New York for sure. We just got, came back from New York. We were there tech scouting, and uh, there will definitely be a, a decent amount in New York as well because that's where the movie is. And since you're wearing your shot deck cap <laughs> for the uninitiated, that. tell our, our listeners about shot deck. <laughs> oh, thanks, Carolyn. You didn't have to do that. I, was, I didn't know I was even moving on camera. I was wearing the hat because I have a terrible hat head right now. It was not a pitch for the site. Now, ShotDeck is a image database for reference and research and inspiration that I helped create years ago and uh, built it into a business, which is effectively for creatives across our industry, but also through education and you know advertising and sort of any department that is in need of references and 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 research material from movies. So we basically created a database of images from movies that are like keyworded in, you know, 40 or 50 different kinds of ways from camera and frame size to, you know, specific keywords based on the the content within locations, you know, day, night, interior, exterior, you know, ethnicity, you name it, so that you can find um, exactly what you're looking for, whether it be for a pitch deck or for meetings or because you need the right kind of reference of a TV set or a, you know, a, a, a piece of drapery or wallpaper, whatever it might be throughout the process of making movies. In my experience, at every stage, somebody's like, remember that bathroom and you know, uh, in, in, you know, last tango in Paris. And you're like, oh yeah, you want to bring it up and find it and have that leaping off point to have a discussion with whatever department heads and, and people that you're working with. So it's meant to help ease the pain of finding those images. And you've really involved uh, both professionals and students, really made it a community. Well, yeah, the students are the greatest resource we have because one, they're a huge part of our base of users because what I used to do from the first time I first got into movie making, which was like I was an economics major in college, but halfway through I really got into filmmaking and I knew about junior year in college I wanted to be a filmmaker. And so I would break down movies. I would write the script by hand and I would like literally break down the movie into its parts to understand better how it was constructed and how it was made. So for me, that process began, kept going all the way through my career in terms of preparing for a movie. So I always felt like, well, if you really want to understand a movie, why don't you break it down and you'll, you'll really see its parts. And effectively, that's what we do on Shot Deck. We break it down into 300, 350 shots per movie. And so you really get a feel for the style and the, 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 you'll even get a feel for the editing if you do it. And so students that are coming out of film school cinematography majors, directing majors, are some of our best resources to help us curate those images and to break it down. And at least they have a knowledge of the filmmaking nomenclature to help us with the tagging and stuff like that. So we still, you know, curate it all by hand and tag most of it by hand. And yeah, so a lot of uh, film students become like uh, our employees as we, as we kind of <laughs> help curate the site. And do you think you'll be uh, working with Black Adam again? <laughs> I hope so. If Jama does it, I'd be there in a heartbeat. Jama's the greatest. Uh, and I really enjoyed working with Dwayne. So um, if they come calling, I probably will. Yeah. 
I mean, here's the thing. I would also like to see individual movies of the JSA because, first of all, Dr. Fate as a character is really super interesting. And besides Pierce being the coolest guy on earth, you've got a character that has literally like existed for millennials. So like you could go back 100 years and see a Dr. Fate movie from, you know, the 40s, which would be really interesting, right? And then Hawkman and Aldous is a really cool actor. He also has a very similar, I mean, Hawkman's exist kind of in, in, you know, at least in the comic books for centuries, different Hawkmans, different Hawkman. So that's a character that can go off forever. But honestly, if like we were going to have one movie come out, I would make a Cyclone movie pretty soon because I think Quintessa as a, as an actor is really interesting. And I think that character of Cyclone and even that origin story of that character could be really cool. And they touch upon tiny bits of it in the movie. But I think those standalone movies and even, you know, an Adam Smasher movie would be really interesting as well as if they're at least if, Dwayne could get his dream and there's a Superman Black Adam movie. I'm sure that would be the, the cream of the crop right there. Uh, and then that would be a pretty good battle. So I feel like uh, any of those would be really fun to make. So Black Adam comes out today. Congratulations. And I'm so glad you were able to join us again on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, Carolyn. Always a pleasure. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.